Hello and welcome to this week's Alpha Podcast. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Excellent. Um, so I had a flick through your Alpha report this week. Uh, you mentioned that markets are very gloomy and you don't really want to talk about them again, so we won't. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we're going to focus on companies again today. Um, and I think the companies we, we, we might want to focus on this week are sort of big old chuggers, as I think you've called them in the past. Unilever, Reckitt, Benkissa. And we're going to talk about something that's a little bit more than a chugger, Games Workshop, which you've written about in your magazine column. Let's start with Unilever, who had Q3s out this week, as did Reckitt, Benkissa. Um, uh, both of them were pretty good. What do you think of them? I thought Reckitt's was a lot better than Unilever. Um, primarily, I think, because I think Reckitt's is better set up to, to exploit the sort of trends that we're seeing with coronavirus, people washing their hands more. And, you know, they've got two very, very good uh, disinfectant brands in, in Dettol and Lysol. And uh, also products that people tend to use a bit more when they're at home, such as dishwasher tablets and air fresheners. And I, I thought I thought the results from Reckitt's were superb, actually. Um, yeah, they upped their guidance as well. So they expect this to continue for a while. Yeah, I, Reckitt's is a, is a company that, and Unilever, they're both two companies that I've been quite lukewarm on for quite some time. But you, um, but you do have them both in the fantasy sip, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. That is correct, but sort of almost sort of begrudgingly, because at the, at the moment they're very dependable businesses. They, you know, the, their key strength is that they have lots of well-known consumer brands that people put in their supermarket trolleys or, or order over the internet week in, week out. And that, that's a good thing, and it has been a good thing for, for a long time. I, I'm a massive fan of private label products, and, it's, and I, I keep a close eye on, you know, on the trends in private label. Um, particularly here in, in America, and private label is not, you know, for some time now has not been. It's not been the sort of inferior alternative that you know you put it in your trolley and it just doesn't do as good a job. And you have the rise of sort of premium premium owned label now, and it's just getting better and better. And if you look at a lot of the products that Unilever and um, Reckitt sell, you can you can substitute those with very very good private label alternatives for a lot lower price. Yeah, so if you look in in Unilever's case, um, one of the um, best performing brands in the uh, the Q three period was Domestos. So it's bleach. And now, uh, yeah. I don't care what brand of bleach I put down the toilet. So, uh, but 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 obviously, you know, they have they have good relationships with supermarkets. They they can get those products up front. They can offer you know excellent sort of deals. Uh, come to arrange with them. So they do have some some leverage there to to make sure you know to encourage people to keep buying the brands over the own label. Definitely, you know, they've got they've got huge marketing. As you say, they've got huge marketing budgets. They've got a lot of clout with. Uh, with supermarkets in terms of 
pricing and particularly shelf space um, where they actually end up on the supermarket shelf. I think what's very, very clear, even though I hold this sort of long-term sort of secular view on on, uh, private label, what we've seen quite clearly um, this year is that consumers have flocked en masse to these brands that, that have, a, have built up a lot of trust over decades. And the strength of the brands at Reckitt's, to a lesser extent Unilever, um, are really, really shining through. And I think now the key, the key test for both these companies now is to actually exploit what's going on now and make sure that they hold on to um, new markets, new customers uh, when everything gets back to normal again. And I'm probably more upbeat on Reckitt's ability to do that than I am on Unilever because I think if you look into what's going on with Reckitt's, um, there seems to be more... I think that, I think the new chief executive that's come into Reckitt's is actually doing some good things and I think there are signs that looking looking underneath the bonnet and away from this temporary boost of, of sales, that there are some quite good things beginning to happen with Reckitt's. And um, leads me to be a bit more optimistic on it and view it in a more favourable light than perhaps I would have done last week even. Yeah, well, I mean, what, what sort of things are they doing? I, I think you're talking the average report, of, you know, they're streamlining the business, they're taking costs out. Is there more to it than that? Yeah, I just take I just take it very positive. Things like um, you know the fact that Detol and Lysol um, they sold those into nineteen new markets this year. Now they've had their following wind from this, but that's that shows that there's some agility here, and that there's some quick thinking and ability to 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 actually exploit trends but I think what's interesting is that I think Ricketts has realized that it's probably had a pricing problem you know we talked a few minutes ago but you know the differential in price between um, private label and branded products and then you've got the, the, the quality gap is definitely closing between the two and I think the new guy that's come into Ricketts has realized that you know you have to, to grow this business sustainably. You have to do it through volume rather than price. And you, you just basically need to sell more stuff. But to sell more stuff, you need to cut your prices. And you're not seeing price cuts at the moment. You're seeing it's difficult with price because there's a mix effect in there as well. So people can buy higher, higher or better products at higher price. So it's difficult to see what's happening. But there is a clear strategy at Reckitt's to take £2 billion of cost out of the business and reinvest it um, into lower prices. So you take, you know, 300 basis points off your gross margin and hopefully you make it back and more by reinvesting it in price cuts and marketing and you get the volume through. And Reckitt's is ahead of schedule at doing this. Um, I thought it was really interesting as well that even the infant formula business, which was a terrible acquisition, 
uh, about three or three or so years ago. Even that's seeing sales growth pick up, um, and that's been an absolute dog. Yeah. Um, so I think I think there are there are some good signs here that there's a repositioning of the business um, that's making it more competitive, um, which suggests that when we when we normalise, uh, you know, whenever we come out of this situation, um, this business is in better shape, and, and perhaps this is a story that investors can warm to over the next few years. And, you know, the ratings of these businesses, and they're not, you know, they are seen as sort of mature, maybe even considered almost ex-growth by some people. Um, but, you know, they're, just, they're on just over 20 times forecast earnings, which in this market is positively cheap. Mm. Let's, let's, talk, um, let's talk about Unilever quickly. Um, so yeah. are we seeing sort of similar initiatives at Unilever? I mean, they, they've uh, had a bit of a tailwind uh, in their um, sort of cleaning, cleaning products business, um, as I said, Domestos and I think uh, Lifebuoy Soap was the other one that they reported as doing very well. But they, but, but they don't seem to have the sort of strength in depth, as it were, um, across their brand portfolio. I mean, we, we actually interviewed Nick Train this week, who talks, he loves Unilever, uh, and he loves Unilever yeah. because he talks about the power of its brands. But, but actually, if you sort of dig deep into Unilever, a lot of those brands aren't really working very well at the moment. The, uh, the sales strength isn't there. I agree. And you, know, you, I mean, you just compare the sales growth between Unilever and, and Reckitt's for the, for the you know, third quarter exactly the same period of time. They've both got December year ends. And Unilever's underlying sales growth was four four and a bit percent. And Reckitt's was double digits. Um, Unilever, my my main worry about Unilever is that since Warren Buffett and his friends tried to buy it, I think back in 2017, the business has almost been run as if it was actually in the hands of a private equity outfit so there's been a lot of there's been a lot of emphasis on cutting costs and generating cash and less emphasis on things like product innovation uh, and growing the top line and you know you look at like Procter and Gamble you know Procter and Gamble is you know in a similar sort of position and you know they they're beginning to they have over the last few years tried to develop you know, new innovative products. And Unilever's, you know, dabbled with this, but largely through things like acquisition. You know, it buys things, it bought things like um, Dollar Shave Club. You remember that? Mm. Yeah, it's quite a big we deal. Never hear, we never hear it mentioned. I think it paid a billion pounds or a billion dollars for this business because it was seen as a, you know, a disruptive, innovative selling model. And we've heard nothing from it. And actually, if you look at if you look at that shaving market, it's probably not all it's cracked up to be because Gillette and Wilkinson Sword have cut their prices. And in fact, Wilkinson Sword has actually bought out Harry's razors. So if you're buying a Harry's razor thinking that you are getting an independent product, you're not. It's owned by Wilkinson Sword. But going back to Unilever, um, the real issue with Unilever is, is sales growth. And, and volume growth in, in particular. And obviously there is some volume growth um, at the moment from, from the benefits of the, you know, the coronavirus and people buying hygiene products. But 
elsewhere things things aren't great you know things like the laundry business the beauty business you know skincare is doing quite well but things like hair care and other stuff is pretty lackluster now maybe that's because people are staying at home more and not buying as many of these products but this is not this is actually a long-term issue where i think there is there is some encouragement um is that the company referred to a couple of products. So it, it launched an antibacterial version of Dove, which has been a very successful brand for it, which is obviously quite opportunistic um, in the current environment, but also things like um, Hellman's, Hellman's mayonnaise, they launched a vegan product. And, you know, vegan, vegan products are massive. You know, you have to go and walk around any any supermarket and you can just see the amount of shelf space, the increasing amount of shelf space that's going towards us. So there is a bit of innovation tapping into to, to trends. And that, I think that's a good thing. But I think there's a lot more to do with this business. That's interesting, that vegan mayonnaise point, because I remember, I do remember, uh, they tried to sue or they tried to stop uh, an independent rival calling their product vegan mayonnaise, claiming that it wasn't mayonnaise because it didn't have eggs in it. So I hope they're not calling their <laughs> Hellman's vegan version mayonnaise because that would be rather hypocritical uh, looking back. Um, however, however, um, so, so Unilever, you know, it, it, as I say, championed by Nick Train um, on the basis of, of these great brands, um, a company that you could hold on to forever. I mean, it is, it is a, a, you know, there is, as you said earlier, a reliability about this. Even if you've got some softness here and softness there, isn't this exactly the kind of company that people should be hanging on to during uncertain times like this? It's not going away. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's probably a fair comment. And I, uh, I think, you know, I think you sleep quite well at night owning, owning Unilever shares. I think the issue is now, I mean, the shares have gone up a lot. You know, over the last, you know, since the bid came, since the management responded, been a big improvement in profits, cash generation. Where where does it go from here? And this is where I think it needs to really sort of ramp up, ramp up the, the top line. And I'm not, you know, I'm not of the view. I think I think Nick Train, you know, his his view is that this. These, these kind of shares are seriously undervalued because they are bond proxies, basically. They're as, they're as reliable as bonds, but with growth on top. And therefore, you have slow but sort of steady growth, but very little risk. And I think his view is that, you know, this should be a, this should be a company that trades on 40 45 times earnings rather than 21 maybe uh, that's it's a view um obviously that that's his view um i i think there probably is you know there probably is a little bit of merit in that view but i but i wouldn't go that far because i think that to say to say that to say that unilever is is risk-free is like saying that its competitive positioning is so robust that no one can come along, come along and eat its lunch. And I think if you just look at what's going on in the world of food products, beauty products, you see a lot of um, of niche. You know, we talked. You know, we talked about private label a lot, 
but you also see a lot of niche boutique artisan type brands that can enter in local markets, be very nimble and actually inflict, inflict a lot of damage on, um, on the big, on the big companies. And what tends to happen is the big companies buy them. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Harry's razors. Yeah, absolutely. Just take them out. So they do, so they yeah. do have that, that sort of moat as it were as well. They are just big enough to gobble up anyone who comes and, and perhaps threatens them. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, it's a good business. It's a good business. The question is whether whether it's a great business, and I'm not convinced it is. I think it's you know if if I own Unilever stock as part of a portfolio, I, it's it's fine. You know, it, I think it will do a job for you. I think I think I think it is quite a, it is a low risk a lower risk business than lots of other things, but that comes at the expense of growth. And I think if we get back to the you know the real basics uh, and the fundamentals of what makes shareholders money over the long run, it is profits growth. Yeah, that's, um, absolutely. you know you can have a re- you, you can have a repricing of risk and of these so-called quote bond proxies. And let's face it, this is what's driven you know the market in big cap for the last decade. You know, you've had these big companies. You know, everybody says, you know, uh, you know, Jim Slater famously quoted as saying that elephants don't gallop. And he's right. You know, they don't. But what's happened is you've had a repricing of these of these big cap shares. Um, reflecting their perceived riskiness, which is quite low. So the riskiness, the risk is low. And the argument is that you can pay a higher valuation. You can accept a lower rate of return, a lower interest rate, or a higher PE multiple, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, you, now, you, that, you could have said the same about Diageo, though. And in fact, Diageo was, you know, when I looked at this, in fact, it was probably about some six or seven years ago when, when this sort of bomb proxy discussion was, was sort of uh, really starting to, to, to pick up. Diageo was in that basket as well. You'd have Unilever and Diageo and Reckitt. These are reliable companies with amazing brands. That And actually, Nick Train has just uh, added a position in Diageo as well. Um, but Diageo proves, you know, what, what's happened this year, that, you know, there is no such thing as certainty, um, even when it comes to very large elephants like, like Diageo. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, as investors, we... This, this is an immensely valuable time for investors, um, because I've, I've always held the view that you find out more about companies when things are bad than when things are good. When when things are good, you know, you, it can mask things that, you know, are, are vulnerable about a business. And I think we've had a an event, an extreme event this year, which has, you know, Open, you know, drawn back the curtains on a lot of business and let in the light, and people can see how these businesses work, how they how they fare when times are rough. And I, and I think we've learned a tremendous amount about the resilience or otherwise of many many businesses this year. And um, you know, just as we did in the Great Recession in 2008 2009 and you know it's no it's no surprise that a lot of the shares that have done well over the last decade were the were the were the businesses 
were related to the businesses that were were very resilient in a recession. Mm. And we've had another weeding out process here. So you come back to a business like Diageo. I, Diageo, for me, is you know has shown some vulnerability. It's a great business. It's a great business with some great brands. And I think it probably will do do pretty well over you know over the next 10 years. I think people will be drinking more Tanker A10 and Johnny Walker Black Label in 10 years' time than they are now. Um, but the, the, the business has been exposed. You know, if, if bars shut, if air, people don't travel through duty-free shops in airports, this business takes a hit. You know, and, and, you know, this is this is a business that, you know, behind the scenes of all the bottles that you see on the supermarket shelves or in bars, you know, there's huge, huge amounts of um, investment that goes into these businesses. But, you know, you have to lay aside premium scotch for over a decade. You know, that needs financing. And that's a great barrier to entry to competition, but it's also... A heavy cost that you need to make a return on so um yeah i, I it's I, i'd be quite happy owning shares of diageo but again you know it's what what price what price do you put on on their cash flows and their profits um to me you don't put it on the same yield as a bond because there is you know we talk this thing that's discussed in academia you know the equity risk premium equities are risky because businesses move up and down. And as a shareholder, the reason why equities are risky is because you get paid last. Yeah, and, 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 and sentiment can simply turn. You know, people yeah. can actually decide that actually we don't want these bond proxies anymore. That actually, we're, we're gonna, we, we value something else more highly. Uh, and you may, you know, or, or there may just be a, a, an underlying business problem that takes a share price down. And, and then, then you've lost I, capital. Yeah, and I think... Again, you come back to it, you know, what, what is the medium-term growth of a business like Diageo? I don't know, 4%, 5% top line? Um, and that's all right. You know, if it can deliver that year in, year out, that's fine. This year it won't do that. Um, but, yes, you can, you, can, you can see that as a steady compounder. But if you can buy a business that's growing a lot more than that you, and – this is obviously what we're all looking for. Um, you can do a lot better than, than owning Diageo. That's true. Should we talk about one of those such businesses, Games Workshop? Yeah. Now, you know, this, uh, this has been, uh, the shares have been motoring, the business has been motoring, reflecting, uh, I'll do that again. The business has been motoring, the shares have been motoring, reflecting that, 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 uh, that profit growth that's been happening here. Um, I mean, this, this uh, you say, you know, COVID has highlighted uh, the weakness in some companies, in, in Games Workshop's case, it's really highlighted the strengths. I mean, it's, it's, it's proven an amazing company uh, and one that's, that's perhaps uh, sort of caught us out a little bit. Yeah, uh, I, I always think that, you know, I'm, a, I'm quite, a, quite a newcomer to looking at Games Workshop in any kind, any kind of detail. And... I don't know. You, you were an analyst, weren't you, once upon a time, John? I was indeed. Software. Yeah, as was I. And I don't know whether you agree with this or not, but you know, I, I followed companies for for years. You know, and it was it was my 
you know, my day job, day in, day out, for 12, 13 years. And I always found that the more, the more you looked at a company, you, you, you could always learn something about it. And I've gone back and look at Games Workshop, and I've spent quite a lot of time sort of digging, digging into it a bit more, looking behind the scenes and, you know, doing things like, you know, even going on to sort of internet forums of gamers in the UK and, 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 uh, and the US. And I spent a lot of time also looking at their, their Warhammer community site as well. And there's, this, there's a lot of, lot of information that you can glean from this. And you can only walk away from it feeling very, very impressed with, with how this business is being run. And, you know, you've seen a step change in the performance of this business over the last four years. And I think what I am even, even more convinced of now than, than I was is how this is a much different business under the current chief executive than it was under the previous one, the way that the, this company is being managed. Um, and I'm talking about here, particularly the attitude towards customers. And, you know, you, you rewind, you know, five, six years ago, and a lot of, you know, a lot of gamers, Games Workshop customers who were seriously fed up with how Games Workshop treated them, particularly on things like price hikes, messing around with the rules of the games, the quality of the product, and, and so on. And, you know, since 2016, um, this business has been transformed, and not only in, ter in terms of basically how it engages with its customers. You talk about pricing in your uh, magazine column. Now, I think this is quite interesting what you're doing here. You mentioned pricing in the context of, uh, you know, uh, fast-moving consumer goods, but pricing is really important here as well. Tell us what Games Workshop are doing that, 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 that's actually you know, working really well to, to sort of engage their customers and certainly not to annoy them in the way that they perhaps had previously. Yeah, I mean, I mean they took the decision a few years back just to sort of simplify their pricing and, and make sure that the price hikes were predominantly coming through on, on new releases rather than existing products. And, you know, you can dig into the accounts. They do actually tell you. You know, the percentage split every year between new and existing products. And, you know, you can just have a look at what's been going on. To the, Obviously, new products today become existing products, you know, next year or, or whenever they turn to classify that. And you can see that it's having a really positive effect. You know, not only are you getting decent amount of new product launches every year, but if you actually look at what's happening to the existing existing product base, so they're building up the base and, and it's growing really nicely. And, you know, just, just doing something simple as that and painting a picture and putting it into a chart tells you, tells you a lot. And, you know, this is, this is something that, you know, the, the sort of day-to-day -day business of it is they're selling more stuff. And, and that is telling you that they are, keeping hold of customers. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's some myths about this company in that, you know, even the company itself sort of six, seven years ago would have said, you know, we sell equivalent of toy soldiers to teenage boys and it, it's become much more than that now. And it's also, it's also a global business. You know, this is not, you know, a UK 
you know, are you, you know, you see the shops, little shops on the high street or in back streets of towns. This is not just a UK business. 75% of the sales of this business are from, from outside the UK. And, you know, particularly the American market, um, and also, you know, to an extent, the Chinese market as well, eventually. Um, there's just huge amounts to go for here. And, you know, you look at, you look at a business, I think, I, I held this view probably until about last week, that this was a business that potentially is very volatile, um, maybe even faddy, uh, and quite difficult to predict. I, I don't actually think it... I think it is still quite difficult to predict. Um, but I don't think it's a fad. I, I, I think... That, I mean, fad's a bit strong. I never thought it was a fad. I just thought that it may it may move in and out of fashion. Um, but I don't, I don't think... I, I don't think this is true. I think, I think... You know, clearly, you know, there are some very good private investors out in Games Workshop who... I've studied this company a lot more than I have and know this business really well. And I, I think they, they have uh, come, to, come, to, come to the conclusion a long, long time before I have. Um, but I, I'm just very impressed with what's going on here. Um, and I think that if you just look at the pipeline of business, you look at the momentum in this business and the way this business is organized, you know, this is a business which has quite a lot of fixed overhead which gives it what's known as operational leverage so that its profits can can increase faster than its revenue growth obviously that can work in reverse but i think what what i'm getting the feel of here is that there are what's been put in motion over the last four or five years has made this business a lot more resilient than perhaps people would have thought it thought it might be Mm. You do um, have to pay. You do have to pay up for the shares, though. So they're not cheap. You know, th- th- this is a great not, business, but you have to pay for that again. You do, you do, but it's no, it's not really that much different to the price that you're being asked to pay for for other businesses. And you know, some businesses that are arguably don't have the growth potential that this this company has. And I think you know one of one of the things that I looked at in the you know in my in my piece was the. Just looking at the current forecasts out there, and this is really sort of interesting bit of stock market psychology going on here. Now, I don't know whether this used to be the case. You know, I've not been a city analyst for nearly fourteen years, but you always used to know there was a bit of gamesmanship used to go on. But if you if you had a company that was in a sweet spot, it would always it would always leave what was what I used to term a bottom drawer. So that, you know, it had forecasts out in the market that it knew that it could beat and potentially smash. And, I, I, you know, Games Workshop came out with that stunning, stunning trading update about six weeks ago. And I think everybody was shocked in a good way on that. And I think there is an element of truth. That, you know, we live in we live in strange times and the, and the management are probably, be, you know, are being perfectly up front say, look, we're not sure what's going to happen here. And I, I think none of us are sure what's happening here, but I think what is happening here is actually quite good. Mm. So we're unsure of it, but we don't know how, but it's, it's a question of, we're not unsure that it could be really bad. It's a question of, we're not sure about how good it could be. The, qu- the question is, though, know, Phil, are you, uh, are you going to buy it back 
for the fantasy sit, having uh, maybe having mistakenly, maybe. as you admit yourself, sold it a little bit too early. Yeah, I, this this is yeah. Uh, hands up on this. Um, <laughs> I should have done. I should have done with this what I did with Avon. What I've done with Avon Rubber. In the Avon Rubber has become you know quite more expensive than Games Workshop actually, and and or not actually that's not true, but not far off. Similar similar values. Um, probably better earnings visibility, but you know you just. One of the lessons you learn is that, and this, this is just bad habits from when I started investing. I used to be a very far, far too focused on valuation. And I think the rule is if you have a good business, and let's face it, there are not many outstanding businesses that you can buy on the UK stock exchange. Just hang on to it. Hang on to it. You know, we, we live in, you know, we live in a world of low interest rates. And as I say, you know, People are having to reappraise what what the definition of fair and reasonable value is. Now, you, some some value investors who are listening to this are probably screaming at their computer screens or their smartphones and thinking, you know, this is just a, a cop out to shares that have become overvalued. And I, I've got some sympathy with that kind of view, but I, I think this is a re- really good business. I think that. I think the forecasts are too low, and I think the long-term momentum in this business is extremely good. The one, the one thing, I, the other thing that I did talk about in this in this piece was the the issue of royalties, and royalties, you know, is you know where Games Workshop can leverage their, you know, leverage the brand, leverage the Warhammer brand. And you know, sell licenses to computer game makers, video makers, board game makers to use the Warhammer brand, and they get they can get a royalty stream off it. I think there's a lot of potential here, but I'm not. I'm probably not as bullish as some people are on it because I think that management, quite rightly, have identified it as an opportunity, but they don't want to to push it so much that people stop buying the figures and the board games and the books and start playing it on somebody else's computer game instead. So my view is that the royalty potential is there, but I think that it will be managed so that it doesn't threaten the core business. And 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 therefore the value of royalties is... I'm not convinced... Whilst, whilst the royalty stream is virtually a pure profit because there's no cost against it, I'm not convinced how valuable that stream is. I think the core business is a lot more valuable than the royalty stream. Also because the way that the company gets money for royalties, so it tends to get, certainly are pretty fickle and move in and out of fashion. So I don't think you've got as a sustainable and quality growing revenue stream and profit stream in royalties as you have with the underlying underlying business, mm-hmm. I, I personally think the underlying business, the, the royalties are there. To, the royalties are no bad thing. Don't get me wrong, and they what they are incredibly useful for, as well as a source of profit upgrades, but maybe not value upgrades, is that they cement the brand, they reinforce the brand, and you know this is this is something that is 
all powerful with this company. And some, something that, I, you know, if you look at, you know, another good gaming company, Frontier Developments, this is something that they've done very well as well. And it's, and it's you know, really, you're just going back to basics, aren't you? You know, look after your customer, engage your customer. And mm. um, Games Workshop, I think there's, I think that I've certainly underappreciated. I don't know whether the market underappreciates it, but I think that the, the foundations that have been built with customer engagement here, um, I, I, my gut feeling is that this has got a long way to run. Yeah. Sounds like another uh, classic example of the power of brands, really. So uh, kind of supporting Nick Train's view. But this, this is, a, this is a, a powerful brand with a lot of growth ahead of it. So uh, perhaps slightly different in that respect. Maybe they'll surprise us on the royalty front as they've surprised us before. Um, who knows? One to keep an eye on. I think if you look at the forecast for royalties at the moment out there in the market, there's definitely scope to, you know, do better than that. Yeah, sounds 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 like they've got a, they'll have a card up their sleeve. So uh, thanks, Phil. Uh, been good talking uh, as always. Um, don't think you're around next week, are you? I think you're having a, a, a well-deserved break. So uh, speak to you in a couple of weeks. Uh, enjoy uh, enjoy your holiday. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. Talk to you soon. Speak later. At Airbus, our products make the world a safer place and help nations protect their sovereignty. Whether it's air ambulance services at home or evacuations overseas, our technology protects citizens, safeguards security, and aids responses to crises. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at airbus.com.